This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Yo, this is Rashani from the Single Simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back, listening to Militantly Mixed. Hey y'all, welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host Charmaine, aka Mixed Girl Maine. And if you've been with me for a while, you know that technically I'm supposed to be on a break during the month of April. I had a very difficult month in March. I lost my cat. I have another sick cat. I've dealt with some health issues. I'm having some work troubles. My husband's bike got stolen, which he's had for 11 years and was really emotionally attached to. It's just, it's been a shitty, shitty month. So I was going to take this month off of April and try to recharge my batteries, uh, allow myself to properly grieve for my cat and take care of my health because I really don't take care of myself trying to take care of myself. And I'm failing at it. FYI, I'm failing at it. Um, so yeah, I wasn't going to be doing intros all month, but I really feel like I, I need to preface what we're about to experience because it's a it was a really exciting event for me. And generally, I don't know, it's really hard to be fully disconnected from these shows. Um, even as we take even as I take breaks, uh, it's important for me to be as connected as possible. So whatever, I'm failing at my break, but I'm excited about what I'm going to tell you. So last week I was traveling uh, in Sacramento, California for a number of events that was set up for me by Sierra College and more specifically Johnny Terry, who is a personal friend, but he is a teacher that I met at Sierra College when I was a student there. He was my now husband, then BFF's uh, first philosophy teacher. He is the reason why my husband has gone down the path of philosophy. And so uh, Johnny was his first professor. Now he is a professor of philosophy as well. And for me, my first introduction to Johnny Terry was as a... Well, I guess I did go to his class with my husband um, just, just to observe or whatever. And he pointed me out as soon as I sat down, he's like, you're not in my class, who are you? And it was probably an instant love connection there. But I was also a technical director for distance learning classes at Sierra College as part of my work study. And he was one of the classes I was assigned to. And so we developed a, a relationship through, you know, talking over the cameras and controlling the cameras while he taught his classes for distance learning. And all these years later, we're still we're still friends. But he helped arrange for these events at Sierra College for me. And um, before I get started, I want to thank Johnny Terry and Tamal and Rose and Mika and Megan all for either arranging events for me or arranging students for me or helping get me to the places I needed to be. Uh, it was a really great experience all together. Uh, I was there for their Love Your Body Week at Sierra College. I did speak on the different beauty standards between white and brown bodies and black bodies and yellow bodies. Uh, and we blew open, <laughs> this is so sad, but we blew open the minds of a lot of the white kids that were in attendance then because they did not, they have never heard or been exposed to the differences in, of beauty standards for yellow, brown, and black bodies. And Thank goodness I had participation from the students in the class, so it wasn't I wasn't the only authority, quote unquote, in the room. There were several students who spoke up on behalf of whatever their ethnic groups were and how their beauty standards are treated, and you could see the effect it had 
on the white kids there because they did not realize that we dealt with the things that we deal with. And so it was all in all a really successful event, I think. Afterwards, I also had several students come up and talk to me, either to tell me that they had never heard um, the kinds of things we talked about, uh, how you like brown and black bodies, what's considered skinny and fat for brown and black bodies, things like that, um, how celebrities are treated differently, things like that. There was a lot of stuff we covered during that, that talk, and I had a few students come up to me afterwards in, to express their surprise. And then I had a few come and express their, what do I do to be better and to learn more kind of sentiments as well. So it was a really great experience. I don't know if I'm going to be able to share that in a future episode because I'm not sure if you could hear the students when they talked and I don't want there to be a lot of dead air. But uh, to be honest, at the time that I'm recording this, I have not listened back to it. So I don't know if it's usable yet. But I do know that my my four interviews for Militantly Mixed are. So you're going to be hearing those over the next couple of weeks. And I will get into sharing the first interview that I experienced in in Sacramento in a few seconds. But before that, I want to say that these experiences that I had in Sacramento this last week have really opened my eyes to what the path is, the, the new path for Militantly Mixed. As I, I will never stop doing the long distance interviews because I need to have access to people all over the world to share mixed race representation for everybody. So that is never going to change. But these experiences of being able to do interviews on the road with people and sit face to face and engage with them directly about what their mixed race experience has been like or their intersectional LGBTQ plus POC experiences like, it really has changed my motivation a little bit into the direction of getting militantly mixed on the road more often. So I am going to be doing a big fundraiser from now until the anniversary date of militantly mixed, which is July 5th. Between now and then, I would like to raise $2,500, $2,500 to help promote militantly mix on the road. This would be to get small venues to to allow us to record in public and help generate an audience for us or to market myself to more community colleges and the and the other college circuits so I can I can continue these intersectional identity discussions. I think this is really it really is a different experience to look the person in the eyes while we talk about intersectional identity and really connect, you know, person to person within that experience. It's 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 a little different than doing it online. Online over Skype, you still get connected to people, and I still now have many of these people continue to be in my life, and we message each other on a regular basis. And I can't wait to meet some of them in person, which I do hope will be possible as I do get to travel more often for the show. But these in, these person to person ones in front of an audience and having audience participation and audience asking questions really does change the game a little bit. So I'm gonna do that. I talk every week about the different ways that you can contribute to the show to help keep us going and growing and this is going to be slightly different so for for regular support of the show you can still go to patreon.com slash militantly mixed and subscribe for a monthly support of the show anything as low as a dollar to as high as anything you wish there's different reward levels depending on what level you contribute at and that's how the show keeps going publicly that's how our hosting fees are covered so that you can listen to it on itunes stitcher soundcloud overcast youtube spotify i'm still pushing for pandora and iHeartRadio. i'm still but the patreon com is how you get to hear the show with those donations i'm able to continue to produce a show every week so you can contribute that way or if you would like to participate in this big fundraiser to push for getting militantly mixed on the road more often you can go to paypal.me slash militantly mixed donate anything as low as a dollar to as high as anything you wish and between now and july 5th 
2019. I am going to be updating everybody on Instagram and Twitter as to how far we've come in our donations. These donations will help significantly in getting a larger audience for the show. Every donation does help and contribute to that, but this is actually going to be a dedicated push to market the show across the, at least at first across the United States, and then eventually as we get a little bit bigger, hopefully we can start getting more funding to market outside of the United States as well. So if you'd like to help get Militantly Mixed on the road and maybe actually at your town or your city or your college or whatever, please consider contributing to the PayPal dot me slash militantly mixed fund because that's that's the next stage in the evolution of militantly mixed yeah i think that's good and i did say i wasn't going to do a long intro and i have done one okay so let me talk about what's going on this week this week this is the very first event that i had when i was up in sacramento i was at the lavender library in downtown sacramento shout out to cindy and nancy there for organizing the space and allowing us to be in the library to record this episode. The Lavender Library is a LGBTQ plus safe space. It's a library with uh, books and periodicals and magazines and even a porn section that is all LGBTQ plus content. It's an awesome space and they, you know, carved out a little area of the library for us to be able to record this interview in front of an audience and it was awesome. And I was in Sacramento when this was originally created, but I had not heard about it until last year, which is unfortunate because it might have been a nice space for me when I was a little baby bisexual trying to figure out what was going on that I could have gone, but I didn't know about it. And so I think if you are in the Sacramento area, please go to the show notes. You'll see a link to the Lavender Library and the address and everything like that and see if it's a good resource for you. And and then my guest, his name is Clarmundo Sullivan. He is the organizer of the Golden Rule Services in Sacramento. The Golden Rule Services is an organization that creates a culturally conscious POC space for, for health, education, support on social justice issues, things like that. It is a It was a response to the gap in what was available to POC LGBT people in the Sacramento area back when it was created in, I believe it was 1998, 2000, somewhere around there. Clarmundo is a he's educated in social work and he has also was also responsible for creating spaces for during the HIV AIDS the early days of the HIV AIDS epidemic for POC folks that were affected to go to. So it was an, a really awesome person to get a chance to, to speak. Um, it was a great person to have as my very first live in front of an audience episode. So I'm really excited. Please go to the show notes. You'll you'll get all the links you need for Golden Rule Services and for the Lavender Library. And then as the future weeks come up, you'll hear the recordings that I did with students at Sierra College during the Love Your Body Week for Militantly Mix. So it, it's, it was a great time. I got a lot of stuff squeezed into three days. Um, I was emotionally flat after that trip, though, because I, you know, recording that many interviews back to back and hearing all those stories, not to mention the people that came up to me after recordings just to talk. It was a pretty heavy week. So it's it has taken me about a week to kind of come back to to sort of my baseline from doing that. I was pretty exhausted. So if you have been emailing or tweeting or Instagram messaging and I haven't replied to you yet, I'm not ignoring you. I will reply shortly. I'm just trying to catch up in after coming back home and, and everything like that. So keep keep going. If you would like to email the show, please email Charmaine at militantlymix.com. That's S and Sam, H-A-R, M as in Mary, A and as in Nancy, E at militantlymix.com. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at 
militantly mixed. And if you want to follow me on Twitter where I get to be a little bit uh, trash on occasion, that is at MixedGirlMain, M-A-N-E, on Twitter as well. And I think that is a good place to stop. So without further ado, here is my recording with Clarmundo Sullivan at the Lavender Library, arranged by Sierra College and Johnny Terry. Here we go. I'm very excited today right now because this is the first time that I'm bringing Militantly Mix out in front of humans as opposed to being at my laptop with my headphones on. So thank you so much (laughs) to Cindy and Nancy for allowing us to have this space to do this and for everybody that participated in getting us together. Carmundo and I spoke on the phone over the weekend just to get to know each other a little bit before we sat side by side and I'm about to ask you all kinds of personal questions without knowing you. Uh, And we had a great conversation. So some of the stuff that we're talking about today is stuff that I've kind of learned a little bit about you, but we're we're just going to have an organic conversation. And basically, Militantly Mixed is a podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. But as I am a very intersectional person, and all of us that are here are probably identify as very intersectional, our intersections get filtered through various lenses. And in my case, my hierarchical case, I first see the world through my race, and then I see the world through my sexual orientation, and then I see the world through my belief systems, and et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of something that we talked about, is that unlike, and forgive me for saying the, this this way, mainstream queerness, our queerness is filtered through our ethnicity and our ethnic groups. And as mixed race folks, we have even more so because we have to be all the races and all the cultural uh, representation, and then we get to be our little queer ass self. So let's get into it. Uh, Before we get started, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to the audience, give a little bit of background about yourself, and then then we'll get into it. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you, Charmaine, for having me today. I'm really, really thrilled that we have this opportunity. Um, I'm Carmundo Sullivan. A little quick history about me. I was born and raised in Sacramento. I graduated from San Francisco State with my bachelor's in social work. Uh, Later went to UC Davis where I got my uh, master's in education with honors, of course. (laughs) And then um, after I graduated from uh, UC Davis, I decided to start a a nonprofit organization here in Sacramento called Golden Rose Services where For over 19 years, we've been providing free HIV, STD, and hepatitis C prevention services for people of color communities, particularly LGBTIQ people of color communities. So really, really proud of that work. And again, I'm just so excited to be here. I really am. I'm, I'm really excited. So we, um, when we talked earlier, we, we kind of spoke about how the early stages of our life is figuring out what race we are or who we are culturally because we both come from multiple Everybody in our family doesn't look the same. Yes. Some of them are brown, some of them are darker brown, yes. some of them are lighter brown. And so it's first trying to establish who we are in terms of that identity. And it's really not until, I mean, I guess we didn't really talk about this. It's really not for me until kind of middle school and early high school that I'm like, I didn't, I didn't, I knew the words gay and bisexual and lesbian. I was around people like this, but I wasn't that because. Yeah you weren't that those were just people that were out in the world that you knew about Mm -hmm. and so that's my period of trying to figure out what's how am I identifying but I knew 
myself in terms of my mixedness. For you, what was your what oh, was wow. your path to identity? You know, um, I appreciate the question. Um, you know, um, my father is African American and my mother is a Latina, a Mexican Mexican American. Um, it's really interesting. Um, I recently uh, revisited her birth certificate. On the birth certificate, it says that she's white. And so that's a, yeah. So it's it's a that's a whole po- whole podcast. Thing, so. <laughs> it is. But let's the, just wait. the Spanish blood uh, European thing messes yeah, us up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 a very interesting history there. But long story short, so I um, my early years in elementary school, I really did not see my mother as anything less than African American. I really didn't really understand color at that time, mm. you know, because you know it was Sacramento, California. Um, I was young. You know, um, I just didn't understand that whole piece. But let me tell you what made me understand that piece. I remember one time uh, in uh, middle school, um, one of the yard duty teachers called me uh, the N-word. And so uh, when I came home and I told my mother, she was livid. Now, mind you, she is about five foot two. (laughs) And when she heard that this six foot tall, you know, Russian woman called me the N-word, She stormed up to the school and she cussed and you could hear all the way down the hallway. <laughs> and so I became, you know, your mother is a badass mom. You know, she's awesome. She cussed everybody out. <laughs> um, but then when they saw my mother leave the office is when the, the, the dynamic changed. And the dynamic was like, well, wait a minute. You know, I thought you were black. Your mom ain't black. Mm. And so, you know, so what are you? You know, and then, you know, long story short, when I came home from school and had those conversations with my mother, that's when she started talking to me about, well, I am your mother and I don't have to show you proof that I'm your Mm. mother. I am your mother. And so because we, you know, uh, it was the first time that I ever was confronted with trying to figure out this whole dynamic of, wow, she doesn't look like me, but I've never seen her as different. Mm -hmm. She was just my mother and she loved me. And so... So when that was when that was brought to me, then that's when I started noticing these subtle things that I w- didn't see before. Like I remember um, watching television shows at the time. We're talking about the late '60s, early '70s. You know, that's I started become a, a lot more acutely aware of race, and I started realizing I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me on television. Mm-hmm. I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me in periodicals. I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me that. Uh, in a lot of different places, but where I did see people that looked like they were African American or or um, mixed, if you will, is there were always negative, stereotypical kind of images. You know, we were the criminals. You know, we were the rapists. We were the drug dealers. You know, it was just very vilifying and de- de- you know demonizing at the time to understand that. Oh my God, I belong to this group of people that people really do not like mm-hmm. and want to render invisible. And so that's it. so I would say early kind of um, elementary school is when I started really kind of coming to grips with with being black. Mm-hmm. You know, being the N word, if you will. But then. The dynamic changed when they found out, my peers, when they found out that my father was black, then I became um, what we used to call, um, uh, what would they call the word? It was, um, you're uh, a half-breed. And for those those audience members who may not know what that is, it's basically the equivalent of being called an N-word, but 
you know, it's almost being less than it's the N word. It's, it's, it's one layer below being the worst of the worst. Some people would think at that time in, in certain parts of the world, even now, that being black or being per, a person of African descent is the lowest of the low, the mm -hmm. worst of the worst. And so then I started being called half-breed. And so that was a whole different dynamic. That opens up. You know, it just opened up a stuff. whole different, like, well, how do I juggle being something that, you know, I didn't choose to be? You know, I didn't choose to be two different uh, races. But, you know, so it, it took me a process from elementary school um, all the way through high school. It wasn't until college when I finally felt like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm learning about my, my both of my cultures and I'm understanding about the contributions that we've made throughout the world mm -hmm. and then um, that's what changed my life um, Charmaine is when I uh, I took an ethnic studies course in college and when I found out that there were African Americans that predated slavery I was like what because <laughs> um, that's how we were taught in Sacramento school systems was you know uh, you know the civil rights both slaves roots you know, uh, certain civil rights movement uh, key figures that were African-American or people of African descent. Um, but then when I started learning about pre-slavery where we were Africans were kings and queens and mm -hmm. then anthropology taught us that, you know, the oldest bones ever found in the world were found in Africa, which leads some people to believe that, you know, the first man and woman were African. So that changed my world. It, 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 it made me feel a sense of self-esteem that I had never felt before. So that's kind of like the history of some of the stuff. Yeah. That, uh, the self-esteem thing, I think, is a pretty critical thing. Um, and it comes up on the show a lot, is that at first you don't know you're different. And then a bastard child tells you that you're different in school, in elementary school, and then you got to go home to mommy and daddy and figure out why, what's different about me, why am I different? And then after that, you you own one of them because you own the one that people allow, grant you permission to own. You are black because you present blacker yes. or because your dad was black. Yes. In my case, I'm a yellow presenting black woman because my dad was black and I was raised in a black area. I talked black, I think black, but I was yellow. And so then there was the half breed, the mongrel, the mulatto, the high yellow, yeah, 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 the yeah, red yeah. bone, yes. which I don't even know how I got red bone. Mm. It, it happens sometimes. Yeah, it does. You know, all these things that indicate that we're not full black. Yes. Um, yeah. And then within our other sides, it was if we even had access. So you and I spoke earlier on the, on the phone when we spoke, it was about sort of not really even identify or getting to identify on your Latin side as, as much because of both access, how your family were, and sort of how the world allowed you to be. You know, I, I um, yes, we, you know, for me, and, 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 and I'll just preface it by saying me, you know, um, my, uh, my grandparents, my maternal uh, parents, my grandparents, um, they were a Mexican, from, um, they were Mexican and, and Spanish, that's how they identified. But um, they didn't uh, approve of my father and my mother's marriage. Um, they didn't prove of the dating, let alone the marriage. And it predates Loving versus yes. Virginia, too. So yeah. it's yes, uh, kind of illegal at the time. Well, you know, uh, I think, yes, yes, on a national level, right? Mm -hmm. um, we know that there were, uh, you know, uh, unions. Pockets uh, of you safety. Know, uh, pockets of safety. Yeah, I appreciate that. And so um, because my grandfather, uh, my, uh, my mother's father, didn't identify 
as Mexican American, even though that's what's on his birth certificate. Um, uh, he he didn't want he he was uh, my 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 father says that he was an assimilationist assimilationist and an culturalist. He did not a cultural a cultural like yeah. a cultural yeah assimilation and acculturation <laughs> types of per, types of behaviors. He did not want his daughter to be to date anybody outside of of Caucasian identity. And so when my mother and my father started dating, long story short, they for a long time did not want to be involved with their half-breed grandchildren. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we got the message very early that our grandparents had an issue with, you know, um, you know, biraciality, if not African-American individuals, when, uh, you know, uh, when our cousins who were fully Mexican, Whenever they had school pictures, oh, they're all over the walls, you know, mm. really proud, really excited. But when it came to the mixed kids, the biracial kids, we never saw our images on the uh, mm. the nightstands or in the in the front rooms. When birthdays came around, you know, we didn't get any of that acknowledgement. Um, it didn't. It took me to graduate with um, from high school with honors and then college with honors for them to finally start opening up and saying, hey, mm. you know, this, you know, I think maybe we've been a little bit rough. Maybe we've misunderstood. They actually acknowledged that? You know, actually later before they passed, <laughs> they did. Um, I remember on my mother's deathbed, uh, my grandfather came to visit her and my aunt, my aunt on my father's side was in the room. And he, uh, and this is a man that was about 70 years old at the time, um, he, he apologized to my aunt and said, you know what, I'm wow. really sorry for the way that I treated you and how I treated your family because they were black. Because, you know, he didn't apologize because it was wrong. He apologized because of the fact that it took him away from my mother who had to make a decision huh. of whether they wanted to, her loyalty was with her parents and her family or with her children. Wow. And so my mother's loyalty was always with us. But isn't that funny right. that, you know, when we finally get this, you know, uh, 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 apology, you know, for the racism and the maltreatment that he that my mother had to endure for years and years and years and my father. Um, it wasn't the fact that uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't because of uh, racism and discrimination and prejudice. It was because oh you know because I could have spent more time with my daughter. Wow. So so I, we knew. Um, it's almost it, like he was waiting for her to solve that problem so he, she can be back in his life versus just accepting you as his family also. Yeah, you know, it you know, uh, we we saw little glimmers of, you know, of tolerance. How about that? Okay. You know, just like people tolerate LGBTIQ individuals, you know, you can come to our church, but you know, there's only a Can't certain be level. in a leadership role. Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> we're going to stop you, you know, you're not fully accepted, but you know, we're going to we're going to hate the we're going to love the person and hate the sin kind of thing. So it was kind of like that dynamic when I was around um, my family um, who were um, people of Latin descent. I remember one time in high school, um, I met my mother's aunt for the very first time in my grandparents' home. And she had never met me, and I was in high school. And so just uh, by chance, she was there. And she said, oh, well, nice to meet you, nephew. Um, and then this is the next thing that came out of her mouth. She was like, you know what? You could really pass for Latino if you really wanted to. So why don't you decide to identify as Latino instead of black? 
you know, we know blacks, you know, just don't have a really fair deal, you know, in this country. So why don't you identify as Latino? You'd have better opportunities, you know. Uh, and this I, is like the thing that happens to all of us. I swear it have it comes up so often on what? this show of someone saying someone in our life at some point tells us it would be better for you if and then they fill in the blank of which of all your things is the thing that would be most palatable as if our faces could just Oh, yeah, yeah, we can just transform right I, away. I was told by a Jewish woman in my ninth grade class during a proctored exam to select white because technically I was half white because my mom is half white, my dad's half white. Um, I'd go further in life. And I was like, well, what about when they see me? And she goes, well, yeah, you'd probably just have to use an, uh, an abbreviation for your initials because I'm Charmaine and that's going to clue in some weirdness for mm -hmm. a white person. Mm -hmm. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, but also, like, eventually they're going to see me. So how am I going to pass? for being white and yeah I mean maybe on the Latin side because there is African blood inside yeah. a lot of Latin yeah, folks yeah. you could but you know but that wasn't her intent you know I, I wish that was the intent that hey you know you're an Afro Latino so that you need to understand that you know Africans and people of Latin descent you know uh, they have a shared history mm -hmm. and so that would have felt a lot better than hey I want you to choose one or the other and hey let's choose the quote unquote better one like she did mm. she was also a person that was ashamed of her Latin um, you know ancestry and so she identified as white and married a white man mm. and so you know it's really unfortunate how in order to um, climb the the ladder of acceptance and privilege you know th the further you not identify as a person of color or a person of, of color descent you know there's more resources and I think that's what their motive their primary motivation was mm -hmm. is that you know you know, we once we you know it worked for us, right? You know, so it might work for you, nephew. So why don't you? So long story short, you know, instead of cussing her out, <laughs> um, what I decided to do is say, you know, no, I'm very comfortable with who I am, and so I appreciate what you said earlier. Um, is that I think because I've always been accepted, you know, from my African American side of the family, they didn't care if I was light skin, dark right. skin. Uh, mixed or not, they accepted me, you know, 100%. I didn't get that same treatment from right. uh, my, my Mexican-American side of the family, and that hurt for a long time. You know, uh, it, it caused a lot of self-doubt. You know, why do they hate me? Did I do something wrong? You know, what's going on here? My mother loves me, but why don't these individuals love right. me the same way? So, you know, it was very, very confusing. And then I think the message that I got, Charmaine, uh, from a very early age is, is what we always knew is that at some point in, in, our, in, our, in the African-American experience, if you had one drop of African-American blood in you, then that's who you identified as. And you didn't have a choice. Yeah, it, didn't, it didn't matter how you presented. And so I think I always felt like, well, the side of, of the family treats me very, very well. And so that's going to probably be, that's probably the reason why I identify mm -hmm. as African-American first. No shade to my my Latin ancestry because I love being bicultural, biracial. I love it. <laughs> and there's nothing better for me. Um, but it, it took me a while, you mm -hmm. know, to, to figure all that out. It, it wasn't explained to me Um and for a very very long time and so there was a lot of forgiving uh, there was a lot of experiences where you know I just couldn't navigate it I couldn't figure it out 
It's such a it's such a strange thing, and it, it does come up often, and it, it it's part of the reason why I feel it's so important to create spaces like this, podcast, video content, blogs, whatever that that show our stories because the crossover always is one side accepted us, and so we like are identifying that side just because that's where we got a little bit of love, yeah. and. Um, but also, if you if you do have any African American descent, uh, or African descent more specifically, um, the one drop rule does apply to us. And we, even though technically it's not part of the law anymore, we can't help it. We absorbed it as a culture, as Black folks, we absorbed it. Yeah. And um, it's in my face. Even though I present yellow, a white person's gonna walk past and they're not gonna tell that I'm black. A black person's gonna see me coming a mile away, and they may say, "You black, you black, right?" Or they might just give me the nod. And then I know that they see me and I don't have to ask that question. Whereas even though I'm technically half white, no white person's going to be like, you must be a half white quarter <laughs> Japanese quarter black, you know, like that's never going to happen to me. And oh I think that's God. why we do tend to identify, if not identify with the browner of whatever we are, we identify with who showed us the first acceptance yeah. and, and who showed us the first love. Yeah. As you're coming to terms with figuring out how you're accept how you're identifying and everything like that, racially and ethnically and, and culturally, then on top of it, you also have to try to figure out in the time that you are coming up, what is your sexual orientation and how are you maneuvering oh as not only a queer person, but a POC and more specifically a black POC. You know, um, I um, yeah, you know that was a process for me. Uh, you know, as a person of color, you know, you know it's one thing to to be um, you know biracial, but then when you add another layer of quote unquote minority status, <laughs> you know, being LGBTIQ, it opens up this whole other level of hate and 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 disrespect and conditions and so so I remember um, when I when I you know uh, I was heavily involved in high school in the church I went to a Spanish speaking church mm. um, and so they were apostolic so homosexuality or anything that was uh, uh, everything seemed like it was a sin so mm -hmm. there was very few things I could do. But I remember um, having these feelings that, you know, I'm attracted to other men, you know, and but I'm, I'm going to go to hell if I think about it, let alone act upon it. And so I, I remember that just opened up a whole a whole different level of stigma for me because, you know, I was still trying to like, let me give you an example of what I mean. Even in high school, when I was struggling with my sexuality or coming out, I remember um, uh, coming to realize that my you know my father didn't have resources financial resources my mom didn't have financial resources to send me to college so the only way that I knew that I could potentially go to college was if to was to excel academically and then I was told that uh, excelling academically wasn't enough that you had to do all of these extracurricular activities to put on your application and so I signed up for it every group that was offered at Hiram Johnson, everything, you know, from the math class to, you know, the math, you know, club to the, the Native American club. But it was really interesting what happened to me when I went to the, the Mexican American club. You know, so I'm excited, like, you know, surely I'm going to get into this club because I'm Mexican. Right. You know, so I get into the, I get into the after school club meeting and there's a room full of people of uh, Latin descent. And none of them look like me, by the way. But so when I get to the room, 
everybody turns around and they look at me like, what, what is he doing here? You know, you know, they, you know, the Black Student Union is <laughs> across the hall. <laughs> and I remember feeling like, oh my God, not only do I have to deal with, um, with being treated differently from within my own family, but now I'm being treated from amongst my peers who are my people. You know, these are people of Latin descent like I am. And so I, it physically, it verbally took for me to say, I belong here. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going nowhere. Mm -hmm. um, for them to say, oh, 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 and we get it now, we understand. Well, how do you not understand that when people like three fourths of the world look like me, right. people of color? You know, so not only had to deal with that racism and discrimination, but I also had to deal with coming out as, you know, as a gay man who was a faith, you know, person of faith. You know, um, in the black community, as you well know, um, it's just a taboo topic, you know, something, you know, black men. You know, we're supposed to be straight. We're supposed to reproduce. We're supposed to have children. Uber we're supposed masculine. to be strong, hyper-masculine. We're supposed mm -hmm. to, you know, there's all of these sexual stereotypes, you know. So I had that to deal with. But then, you know, I didn't identify with all of those things. So it was this huge struggle. And at one point, I remember being in college feeling um, suicidal because I was trying to figure out you know, the God, that, what I'm being taught in church is that the God that loves me hates my guts. And so not only am I hearing this from black churches, but I'm hearing this from the Latin churches that I was attending. So it felt like everybody wanted me to disappear. Everybody didn't want to validate who I was. And it was very, very isolating. It was, um, it was very depressing. So I'm dealing with racism, you know, dealing with culture, and dealing with how I was put multiple times in a position to choose mm -hmm. one or the other, you know. So, you know, how do you choose? Um, a, a, a black documentarian, his name was Marlon Riggs, uh, put it best. He said, how do you choose from your left nut from your right nut? <laughs> <laughs> They're both, or, you know, Philippian tubes. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, it's the same, you know, it's the same thing. Inclusive space. Right, right, right. Yeah, we're in a safe place here. We're going to affirm everything here. Um, I don't want letters. Um, but um, that's that's kind of how I felt. So it was an additional layer. Yeah. You know, it was like, oh, my God, fuck. I'm already dealing with, you know, what it's like to navigate as a black man, a black male in mm -hmm. America. Then if I identify as Latino, there's, there's racism and, and discrimination against that community as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, uh, it, you know, here's the other piece that kind of really fucked me up, was that um, living here in Sacramento, you know, I didn't see a lot of positive images in my community. Um, and so, you know, there's a lack of, of, you know, really good role models that I could look up to. And as a result of that, I felt less. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, well, maybe I am ugly. Maybe, you know, the, 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 the stereotypes for, for black men is that we're ugly, we're lazy, Animalistic. Um, we're animalistic. We're brutes. You know, we we you know we're out to you know we're we're naturally born criminals. Um, and you know what? The truth of the matter is, is that I I was raised in a culture of poverty like that, where I was raised amongst uh, pimps and prostitutes and drug dealers and criminal activity. But you know, it that didn't 
that didn't define who I was going to become. I, it could have, mm-hmm. you know, I could have easily, you know, uh, been a statistic and did that. But something inside of me from a very early age, once I figured out what racism really was, among, you know, against black folks, I remember making a commitment to myself as I didn't want to be a statistic. And what I want to do is I want to prove all of these individuals who don't like me because I'm black or uh, biracial, I'm going to prove them wrong. Because the, the notion is that because we're mixed or because we're people of color, that we're less, that we're deficient, that there's something wrong with us, that we're incapable of achieving anything positive. And so uh, from a, probably in high schools when I started saying, you know what, I'm going to prove everybody wrong. Mm. And that's kind of what has kept my sanity for a very, very long time in the midst of racism, in the midst of homophobia that I still experience, not only in the black community, but also in the Latin community. You know, there's some very strong messages within both of those communities. And that's why I appreciate both of those communities, because we have similar you know, similar cultural expectations right. when it comes to certain things. Doesn't mean that they're necessarily right, but um, I had to learn both. You know, mm-hmm. I had to understand, you know, uh, the cultures of both and what the expectations were of both and how, when they both conflicted, what to do in that situation. Um, you know, you know, if, you know, we talked about this in our conversation. If I go to prison, I'm not going to, sh- I'm not going to know where I'm going to go, yeah. you know, because you we know, actually did talk about this <laughs> <laughs> because you know, you're supposed to tribe up. And how do you tribe up when you look like us? Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, uh, you know, but you know, it's really sad, Charmaine, that, um, and I know your, pro- your podcast discusses this, but you know, just being African-American, there's so many different levels of even internalized racism mm-hmm. that we have to deal with. So not only do we have to deal with racism from without from outside of our culture, but we have to deal with racism sometime within colorism our culture. And you know, the colorism from the hair to light skin, dark skin to, you know, being on welfare and you know, so classism. What you know. kind of black you are? Yeah, what kind of black are you? And you know, it, it's just a huge navigation process. So what I would uh, say to your listeners is that if you identify as a person of color, but especially if you are biracial, I want you to go and apply for uh, mental health services because you are a survivor and we are post-traumatic stress survivors. Mm -hmm. Because how else would you explain why people of color uh, represent so many of the worst social cultural indicators? You know, uh, as people of color, we tend to have the worst poor health outcomes. We tend to have the less education attainment. We seem to be less employed. You know, there's all of these different, we call it uh, social determinants of health, where we're all of these areas where we're supposed to be equal and we're supposed to be successful. We're not getting the same piece of the pie as the quote unquote dominant culture. And so, you know, um, we, we share these experiences. And it's just so interesting how when you add for yourself as a biracial woman, you know, and then, you know, as a person who um, identifies as atheist, then, oh, my God, you know, bec- you know, your culture says that you're supposed to have a faith system. Oh, I'm, I'm designed to not fit in this place. <laughs> I, like, I, you know, to, to try to list out my things, I'm a black, Japanese, Caucasian, British bisexual, hyphenate, polyamorous, atheist woman. Oh, my God. 
there is no space for me in Trump's America. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, yeah, you you deal with these things and you you do. You get to a point where sometimes you have to choose, which is why I say that I'm hierarchical in my identification, because sometimes I have to be a black woman right now or sometimes I have to represent for Asian folks or sometimes I I. But it's tough, though, because once we get down into the LGBT um, section, I don't comfortably maneuver a mainstream LGBT space, both because I'm bisexual and polyamorous and because I'm a person of color. Because a lot of the resources that are available to the LGBTQ community, um, uh, people don't look like us. You know, um, Charmaine, uh, one of the most disappointing things that I experienced when I finally did come out in Sacramento, California as an openly gay black man that's revolutionary, by the way, um, even in Sacramento. But one thing that was so disappointing for me was the lack of African-American positive, well, the lack of African-American images in the LGBT community. The LGBT community in Sacramento when I was coming out was very uh, white male, middle class white male kind of focused. You know, women who love women in Sacramento, they used to complain like forever, like we're here, you know, we exist, you know. That's why I didn't know what I was because I didn't know lesbians were a thing. (laughs) I didn't see them. I didn't know that you was okay. You know, know, I remember um, uh, going to my first gay bar here in Sacramento and I was scared shitless because again, mind you, I was apostolic. You know, so I wasn't supposed to be anywhere near homosexuals. And I wasn't supposed to be anywhere near a uh, a gay club. So I was like trembling and shaking and, you know, I was looking around, didn't know what to do. And I remember when I went in there, I was like, oh, my God, look at all these people. They're gay. They're like me. And so, you know, I was thinking that, you know, there's going to be a wide, you know, come to us. You know, we're your family. We're your peers. (laughs) You're one of us. And I, I experienced the total opposite you know they they looked at me like I was other they looked at me like you know why are you looking at me why are you you know um, I don't want you you know you're black you know I felt um I felt ugly I felt isolated I felt non-affirmed I felt you know so that was just the, the humanistic piece of that experience and then as I explored further, you know, I didn't see any employees there that looked like me. I didn't see any literature that looked like me, that spoke to me as a person of color, let alone African-American. And I was like, oh, my God, is this what the gay community is all about? And so it kind of if, if I wasn't if you know, if I wasn't careful, I could have internalized that internalized racism that, you know, I'm still ugly, even in this community. I'm still black. I'm still unattractive. I'm still undesired. I'm still um, an object of, you know, eroticism. I'm, 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 I'm this, you know, all, you know, because I'm a black man, you don't care about my culture. Um, you don't care about me and what my interests are. All you know is the stereotypes that exist within the, the LGBTIQ community, one of which was, you know, you have a big black dick. Mm-hmm. So would, would you, would, would as a Caucasian gay man at the time, you know, would they invite me to their homes and introduce me as their partner? No. But if they wanted to get between my legs because they thought I had a big dick all day long. Um, I remember going to gay bars where they asked me for several pieces of, of ID. 
you know, um, you know, I'm in a long line because, you know, it's the only gay bar in the area. So I'm seeing all kinds of Caucasian going, going in there. Went, you know, here's my ID. Have a good time. But when I got to the front of the line, sir, we need to see five pieces of ID. Well, okay, I, I have a... I have for a, an apartment? Yeah, yeah, yeah right. It's like... Um, <laughs> you got a gas you know, bill? <laughs> yeah, I was like, what's going on here? You know, and so um, those... those um, encounters i was very very disappointed right. uh, initially my initial experience coming out in the lgbtiq community here in sacramento was very negative and it's a it, and as a result of that i can see why um unfortunately um there's members of the lgbtiq community who are suicidal because you know you're taking a risk of coming out so that could mean that you're losing your family, you're losing your friends, you're losing employment opportunities, you know, because you're thinking that you're coming to this community that's going to embrace you and love you for who you are. And why wouldn't they? Because they should definitely understand what it feels like to, to have a minority status put upon them because of how they're treated. Mm -hmm. And so to experience that other third level of um, stigma was just awful and like I said you know there was a point in time where um, you know a lot of people don't know this uh, but I, yeah like I said I was suicidal because I could not it was too much I had three different minority statuses that I was dealing with and sometimes they complemented each other sometimes they worked well together but oftentimes they didn't work very well together mm -hmm. and it's just like you know where do I fit in where do I belong I, I'm I, it's a um, it's a it's a it's a, uh, a a conditional acceptance in all of these different communities, and I better watch what I say and what I do because then I become a stereotype. I right. become a statistic if if I act a certain way, I do a certain thing. And so you know, um, I think uh, some people would say that you know if you if if you come out in the gay community, everything's going to be wonderful and lovely. And look, there's 25 colors in the rainbow flag. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so there's got to be a place here for you. And that wasn't my experience. And that's not my experience. Uh, that's probably not the experience of a lot of people of color uh, first. But, you know, we, we saw the same thing with women who love women here, uh, particularly here in Sacramento. You know, if you were not a, a white gay man, you know, oh, who are you? What, you know, you know, why, why are you important? You're a woman. That, that's that's what it really meant you know you're you're a woman you know this is about a men who love men kind of a dynamic and you don't fit into that dynamic I and mean, what's really pissy about that um is that when the hiv aids epidemic hit in in, in 81 and you saw all of these white gay men getting sick who was there to take care of us when we were hiv positive and experiencing aids complications primarily it was our lesbian sisters and I think that's one of the, the pieces of uh, the HIV AIDS epidemic that is so uh, unacknowledged mm -hmm. is that our sisters came to bat for us when our families disowned us, put us in hospitals, put us in, um, sanit uh, what do you call those um, places for mental health? Sanitarium? Yeah, you know, just all of these negative things that happened to us when we came out as gay. So again, you know, as, as a gay man, we had to deal with not only being ostracized from our families and our church families and, you know, the society, but then when you had, you tacked on HIV AIDS, then that was a whole level, different level of stigma. And so, you know, I think when we talk about, for me, as an Afro-Latino gay man, um, 
you know, it, there's just so many different layers, you know, it, it, it's just, it's a miracle that anybody who identifies as I do has any kind of, men, you know, uh, uh, success or any kind of um, uh, uh, stability or any kind of, because there's so much that's upon us. Mm -hmm. It's a huge weight to carry. And that's why we see even still um, a lot of African-American gay men identify as straight because they don't want to deal with. Our community with, is not welcoming. Us yeah, yet. it's not, you know. And so I remember um, I was at a, I did a, a, a speaking engagement. I was a, 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 a speaker at a, at a conference, um, keynote speaker, and they wanted to hear about my experience and the intersectionality of being black and Latino. And so, you know, I told them that, you know, uh, it's it was uh, it, it was very challenging for me. Uh, it's always been very challenging for me, and it's not that easy even today. You know, uh, there's still racism that exists. There's still stigma. Um, there's still this notion of having to juggle all of these different social role expectations. And so, but the good news is, despite all of the isms and the obias that I've experienced in my life, I've been able to overcome and become resilient. And I think that's what we learn. Um, and that's one of the things that I'm most proud of, you know, um, as the African-American experience for me has been, is that we're resilient. We have learned how to overcome all kinds of um, obstacles when it comes to racism and discrimination and prejudice and all that kinds of stuff. So it, you know, through my experiences, my negative experiences, um, you know, we were equipped with being stronger. You know, I tell um, our clients at my clinic um, that, you know what, um, you know, oh, you know, Trump is gonna kill us all, you know, you know, we're gloom and doom, you know, we're, gonna, we're not gonna survive Trump. And I say, you know what, if you're an African-American, you've already know what it feels like to be a survivor because this is not the first administration that oppressed that people of color, that yeah. oppressed women, that oppressed LGBTIQ communities. Um, and then when you tack on poverty, being poor, which a lot of people of color unfortunately are because you know, we don't have the same opportunities as other communities, I know how it feels to be poor, so if Trump cuts 25 different programs because I'm because I know what it feels to be black and or Latino and the limited resources and the income that some of the the opportunities present to us because we're other you know I'm, I think I'm going to survive I think many of us are going to survive and we're going to look back and say wow why did we ever doubt that we're going to survive Trump when we've survived since we stepped foot you know on this continent you know it, we, we we're we're resilient you know, we, we know how it feels to do without uh, resources. We know how it feels like to do what uh, some people would say Jesus did in the Bible where he took two fishes and five loaves and fed a thousand people. I saw that happen in my family all my life, mm -hmm. you know. And so, you know, if there's anything to be said about being biracial, it's that, you know, we, you know, we can take what's, amazing about two cultures that have made some significant contributions to the world and we can take the negative experiences that have that has had that has challenged us to be resilient um, we, we we can take that and we can do use that as an empowerment so we can either be a victim or or you know or or we can be a survivor 
And again, you know, that's who we are as people of color. You know, um, it might be radical, militantly radical for me to say that, <laughs> but um, I would say that that's my truth. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, you know, uh, quiet as it's kept is probably the truth of so many other people that identify like you and I do. Mm-hmm. So on this show we do deal, a lot of times trauma comes up and the difficulties of maneuvering the world through our lenses happen all the time. So I like to end the show on a positive note <clears throat> and um, ask of all the stuff we talked about today and everything, what do you love most about being mixed? <laughs> Oh my God, Um, what don't I like (laughs) about being mixed would be my answer. I love, you know, um, let me tell you what being mixed, one of the things I like best or most about being mixed is that because I understand what it feels like to be a person of color and being two different people of color, I know what it feels, I know what minority status means twice. And so it's very difficult for me to not empathize with other individuals who are quote unquote minorities. Right. You know, I, I know how dare I treat somebody who is of an quote unquote another minority status any different when I know how it feels like. Right. You know, so what it's taught me is it, it's taught me unconditional love. It's taught me unconditional acceptance for other people who identify with the struggle of being quote unquote different and dealing with stigma. Being mixed is awesome. (laughs) Mixed power. (laughs) They just just need to see more of us out there. Well, thank you so much for coming on to my show with me and coming to the space. Thank you to the Lavender Library here in Sacramento for inviting us. Thank you for to Sierra College for making it all happen. And yeah, don't forget to be your mixed ass self. Ooh, and if anybody wants to learn more about the organization, is that gonna- Oh yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, go So Talk about that. Okay, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm the executive director of Golden Rule Services here in Sacramento. And we have um, some really great resources for people of color who need resources around HIV and STD and sexual health. And so our website is www.goldenruleservicessacramento.org. And you can uh, go on the website and uh, you know find some really, really great resources. And um, we're definitely, like you, we're, we're always welcoming and accepting of support. So go to the website. I'm challenging all of you. <laughs> go to the website and make a donation. Show some love and support. And um, hopefully they'll do the same thing for you. We'll put it in the show notes, too, so that they'll be able to just click the link and, yeah, support all these different organizations because it's representation is what helps us, I think, make those extra steps. And that's what the show is about. I think that's what the Lavender Library is certainly about. Yes. And also the Golden Rule Services. Yeah. So if you live in in the Sacramento area, you must uh, visit the Lavender Library. There are resources here that will affirm you. Um, not only as a person of color, but also as a same gender loving individual or LGBTIQ. Uh, and that's what we strive for at Golden Rule as well, is that we want to make sure that there's resources in the community for everyone, mm-hmm. including in, uh, some of the most vulnerable tar- community, communities here in Sacramento, which would be people of color. Mm-hmm. So I thank you for inviting me. I'm so thrilled. <laughs> thank you.
Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Johnson. Music is by David Bogan, The One. And if you like what you heard on Militantly Mix, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.